0: cinema I had the opportunity to chat with Cooper Fitch about how the industry has evolved and what direction it is starting to take. Cinema in and of itself is an evolving art form and in the past decade it has been shaken up with the advent of streaming services, the rise of crowdfunding, and the bar of entry dramatically lowering. With all of these changes we need to ask ourselves what defines cinema in the digital era?
1: I define cinema really as the art form that is the visual form of storytelling. Uh, for me, cinema begins with the story. Um, entertainment begins with a story. For lifetimes and generations, everything's begun with a story. And cinema has just evolved over time to be the art form or the term that we use to describe it.
0: Today, we are joined by Alyssa Rohrenbach who has produced four indie feature films, and her latest production, Here a While, just premiered at the Napa Valley Film Festival. My name is Owen Dimitri, and this is Situational Significance. Today we will be diving into what defines cinema and how the production side of it is changing. You've produced around four feature films now, and uh, you've been working in the industry for how many years?
1: Oh gosh, I'd have to count them up, but uh, pretty much I I started inadvertently in college and haven't stopped.
0: You've been it for a while and uh, you're now producing your own features and everything else like that. And for us students who are just now getting into the game, how do you actually go about finding the funding? And especially with one of your movies uh, called Seaside, which had a budget of around $100,000. Can you just give us some insight into getting them produced, getting them off the ground, and getting them started?
1: Yeah, um, I would say uh, more so than money. We had a lot of blood, sweat, and tears <laughs> involved. Um, it was a group effort on all parts. Uh, the director was just as involved as me in, in raising the funding for Seaside. Um, and I, th- I think the director sort of started uh, with a really smart idea, which was that he wanted to write a script... Uh, using the things that he knew he had that we could create a really cool story around. His family actually owned a house on the beach, hence the name Seaside, and it's it's all sort of written around um, this young man inheriting his father's beach house and sort of what happens um, from that point. Um, so it was a really good jumping point for us to have our main location already locked before we even started, and then to be able to build from there. From there, you know, we got a lot of small funders. Um, we got a lot of family and friend funding uh, and some investment. And then that was really only enough to get us through the production part of it. So we, we had known all along that once we got the movie in the can that we were still going to have more fundraising to do, but we just couldn't do it all at one time. Um, so. You know in the beginning a lot of what we were doing to sort of add to the funds we had available was finding donations Mm -hmm. uh it was really eye-opening at the end of the film when i added up the amount of stuff that we got in donations through our fiscal sponsor um and i'm not really speaking about money i'm speaking about like free crew lunches and free food and whatever else that we could get and it, it totaled probably what would have been about Um, 200 or more thousand dollars. That's
0: fantastic. Yeah,
1: and really that was how we made the film. Um, You know, we got almost all of our crew lunches donated, uh, which is a huge factor. When we were out at the coast, all of our crew housing was donated. So otherwise, we would have been paying for hotel rooms, and there was just no way we could afford that. Um, So then once we got through the actual production of the film, um, we had an editor that was in Ireland, the director was in New York, and I was here in Portland. So we had to really you know, focus on that and really getting the edit down. And we made a choice that I don't recommend to everybody, um, but what we had decided to do was to pay for post uh, using a no interest credit card for a year, knowing that we would have to in the next year before interest started accruing on that. Um, raise the rest of the money to pay for the post that we had already done um, So uh, what that led to was a big Kickstarter campaign once we felt pretty good about where we were at the edit We did a video and a trailer and then um, did a big Kickstarter campaign Which was successful and we raised the rest of the money well about $40,000 to pay for post and, and film festivals That's
0: a really interesting way of actually going about raising the money for this and I Kickstarter and GoFundMe and any of these large crowdfunding sources have been changing the landscape of film. And actually, it's been providing a alternative to the studio system. And that was one of Francis's big complaints about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the studio system and mm-hmm. kind of how it might limit creativity. Do you think that with how you guys funded Seaside and... Uh, I guess funding some of your other films, do you think that helped with your creativity or might've actually limited you because you were stuck using certain locations or uh, equipment or anything else along those lines?
1: One of the things I really love about indie filmmaking is that you can either take the limits that are placed on you and see them as um, obstacles that are putting you into a box, or you can see them as obstacles to break out of and see how they're useful to you and you know in addition to that we had a camera that was donated to us we didn't get to pick what camera we used it was the one that was free Um, the location was the one that was free and and that happened several times throughout the process but I think that with the team that we had established which was a, a great cinematographer, a great director, a great production designer, um, we all just, instead of seeing that as stuff that was putting us in a box, just said, okay, well, what's the best way that we can work with this? And that really helped us all to, um, to feel that creative energy and really make changes that were for the good of the film instead of limiting the film.
0: With, actually, the rise of these, uh, or recently... I guess in the past few years, the cost of equipment has been drastically lowering. Uh, You can get a decent cinema camera, like I guess the Z-Cam E2, or like Mm E2-F6, E2-S6, which are like full frame 6K cameras for like five to $6,000. Do you think the lowering cost of entry is actually going to impact the way uh, we go forward with filmmaking?
1: Most definitely, I mean, I think it has already. Uh, just two nights ago, I watched a film, I think it was on Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, called Battery, which was made for $6,000. Um, and I watched the whole thing. And I was actually sort of amazed that I watched the whole thing. maybe, you know, a few scenes into it, I was like, I wonder how much they made this for? And I could tell it wasn't made for a lot. Um, but it had an intriguing enough story that I watched it the whole way through. And by the end, although the quality wasn't as high as a Marvel film, I thought the storytelling was good.
0: That's that's interesting and that's also really good for these young filmmakers. Uh, I guess you, me, other students, anyone who's wanting to go into the industry, is that we're, the rise of these streaming services are paving the way for us to make movies and actually get our names out there beyond the traditional system. And do you think that as we move forward in the digital age and move the next actual decade do you think that studios will start to have less power potentially with the rise of these young filmmakers and the cost of filmmaking going down
1: you know i, I don't know if i have an exact answer to that um i think that there's other factors at play like international sales some um, the chinese markets and and at this point i feel like a lot of those big studio films marvel films like they're not really even made for us here in the United States they're made for a mass market which includes us but also includes um, many other cultures across the world so uh, to me that's how they get that sort of homogenized the same thing happens every time and it's just a lot of action scenes packed into a Mm -hmm. film um, type thing and I personally don't find that intriguing because I'm about the story and to me that's the most important thing so I think that maybe there's room for both and time will tell, but I think that you're seeing more and more of these smaller films, you're seeing more and more smaller distribution companies, and people sort of finding a way to make a part of the market for themselves, um, big and small.
0: Right now we're living in a very global world, and I think that as time goes on, we're gonna, it's gonna continue to rise. So the fact that Marvel movies are these big mass market productions works to that sense. As a rising filmmaker, I guess going forward with future productions, whatever else you're making, would you focus on making them for kind of a more niche market? So people in the US or I guess like Portland or people who are interested in this one kind of thing. How would you take into account the increase in globalization and getting your productions out there overseas and potentially making them appeal to these larger markets?
1: Yeah, I think that there's that's some good points, and there's a lot of factors involved in that. Um, I think that there's a lot of things that make your film potentially marketable to overseas. Um, for example what is the topic and who are the the actors. Um, I recently did another film called Hero While uh, that stars Anna Camp from the Pitch Perfect movies. And the whole film is about um, Oregon's death with Dignity Act, and that's a very prevalent part of the film, it's the main topic of the film. And there are a lot of countries that just won't even consider a film like that because of the topic and their their moral beliefs around death with dignity and whether um, that should be allowed or not. And we knew that consciously going into it, that there would be certain countries where we would not be able to be distributed. So I think you have to sort of like weigh those factors out. Um, <laughs> in addition, you know, there are a lot of Um, research that you can do into the marketability of different actors and if you are able to and have the funds and the the wherewithal to get someone Mm -hmm. of of a named talent like Anna Camp or um, one of our other stars then you can also sort of take that um, to either other investors in other countries or other production companies and and sort of garner their level of interest maybe even before you start Um, because you know what other countries are going to be interested in. It's just like the United States, there's going to be audiences for for sort of everything.
0: I think that's a good point. Uh, And something that we should take a look at, especially in this increasingly global situation, is that potentially marketing to a wider audience is actually stifling creativity and storytelling. And potentially that may be what Coppola and Scorsese are talking about, about the Marvel Cinematic Universe not being cinema, is the fact that it's marketing it for a larger group of people instead of just focusing on the actual story you're telling and how it may impact uh, one group and how it may not be popular with Mm -hmm. other
1: groups. And well, if you think about like even the Netflix algorithm and all these algorithms we have that sort of tell us what you, Owen, are gonna be interested in based off of the other stuff that you've watched. And I think that that's another reason why you're starting to see lots of room for smaller filmmakers because Netflix and and bigger streaming services are recognizing that there are are large groups of people around um, audiences that they didn't really even know previously exist. I mean, even the explosion in the true crime market in the last five years has been insane and that's because of streaming services and the ability to get those stories out there.
0: And actually with this large shift to these streaming service-based, I guess, content creation, do you think it's going to begin to shift how we define cinema and actually how we look at it and how we create?
1: Possibly. I mean, I, I feel like the old model of there's like sort of the gatekeeper of what gets into theaters, right? And we still have that a little bit um, but the mind is getting very blurred. And even in the last couple of years, more and more blurred with movies like Roma from Netflix and the big controversy around that. So I think for me, the the idea of, are these streaming services sort of putting this scope um, around things where they're cheapening what we're seeing? Possibly, um, but it's also opening the door to lots of other artists out there Um, not everybody is going to be able to be Scorsese and there's a lot of people who have good stories to tell and maybe just not the money from Scorsese Mm -hmm. or whatever and I think that as humans our our level of interest in good stories is obviously high enough to support the amount of content that we're, being see- we're seeing being created. So I think we have to kind of take a look at it. And, and in some ways, especially for those of us in the industry, it's a double-edged sword because now jobs pay less. Um, actors get paid less. Uh, the idea of the next Julia Roberts, maybe that's not even a thing anymore because is there ever going to be another actress who can, can manage that much of the market share as someone like Julia Roberts? Who knows? Um, I think time will tell. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that it's both a good and a bad thing, like you said. Uh, it is making things well less expensive, so we're getting paid less. And But at the same time, more content is being created. Uh, more people are getting a chance to put their name out there. Also brings up a point Cooper mentioned is that will there be any uh, huge-name directors like Coppola, Scorsese, Spielberg, again, will there be people who are widely recognized enough to draw in audiences outside of actors? I mean, there's a few up-and-coming actors who uh, still draw in huge audiences, uh, but the fact that we might not see these huge-name actors and directors or anything else like that is a double-edged sword. And that also brings into question uh, that of economic risk with everything becoming cheaper, there's not as much of an economic risk being taken in the content that's being produced. Granted, Netflix is pumping out huge amounts of content, some of which doesn't stick at all. In your opinion, do films need to be taking an economic risk to be artistic?
1: No, I don't think money or economy defines how artistic something is. I mean, money is a tool. And the more money you have, the more tools you have available. But I don't see storytelling or art as as a function of money. Um, I think that I've seen many, many, many short films made on no budget that were absolutely fantastic. And I think it's about using the tools you have and being inventive with what you have, not how much money you have.
0: Do you think that money actually could be limiting creativity? If, For example, if you were to give someone uh like i guess a marvel movie budget who has never used it before do you think they will use tools that they don't need or in such a way that it then limits their creativity i
1: think they'll use tools they don't know how to use and that they're not ready for and i've I've seen that happen there's lots of directors who do one small budget film and then someone comes in and gives them a, a lot of money for their next film and then the next film tanks And there's a reason for that, because you you sort of have to work your way up an experience level and using those tools and understanding what they mean and what it means to have a larger team and how to work with more people. Um, If you made a film with just you and your buddy, that doesn't mean you know how to manage an art department or how to communicate to a production designer what your vision is. Um, Those are all different skills that you would learn along the process of building into bigger budgets.
0: And actually kind of going off that as well, with the tools um, that people might not have to use or might not know how to use cgi that is relatively controversial some people are of the mind that we should that cgi is great and it makes it really easy and some people want practical effects how do you think that young filmmakers going forward will view the differences between cgi and practical
1: I mean, I think that's another time we'll tell. On things that I've produced and in my experience, I have, when I see something that has effects, I'm like, oh, whoa, (laughs) take a step back. Like, how can we do this? And, you know, there's a reason that practical effects have happened for as long as they've happened and continue to sort of be relevant is because there's, there's something in the magic of that that you don't get with CGI. And who knows, in the next few years, CGI is continually improving at like the rate of the speed of light. So I'm sure that at some point, um, maybe we won't tell the difference or we won't know. Um, but I think for indie filmmakers and for you know new filmmakers, for me, it's always about um, how can we do this, knowing that we're going to be able to accomplish it. Which usually means practical effects. Uh, CGI is generally speaking out of our of our price price range. Yeah,
0: (laughs) but it is lowering, which is good and bad. It allows you to do certain things which you normally wouldn't be able to do, but also it can, well, limit that creativity. Most definitely. You won't be able to problem solve in such a way. Uh, There's someone that I know uh, who's a production manager and a line producer, and he once described to me that his position is creatively solving problems because if the director wants to do something in a certain way and they don't have the budget for it it's like okay how do we do the same thing differently Uh, and cgi could help solve that or you can actually try to solve it practically so you still have that creativity in it
1: yeah i mean i think that that's what i love about producing is the same exact thing is that we're creative problem-solving every single second of every single day. And what's fun about it is that we're creative problem-solving things that don't exist in the real world. Like at one point, I remember I was working with a a production designer and in the film, this silo was supposed to be full of oats or something or grain. And obviously we didn't have the budget to fill it full of that. Um, And we were wheelbarrowing this thing out of it. And we're like, okay. And we had to like, figure out a way to make it look like there was like all of these oats. And so we were thinking about how to construct something where we could just pour it on top and it was really fun. And we walked away, we found a solution and we walked away and and we get to do that every day. So that's part of the fun of our job.
0: That is something I love about filmmaking is that you are constantly having to solve these problems in creative ways and everything, nothing's the same. Every project is different and you run into different problems each time. Mm -hmm. I'm curious because you've been in the film industry much longer than me and even the time period that I've been in it, I have noticed some shifts that are happening. What are some of the major uh, shifts that have been happening over the course of your time in the industry?
1: Um, I think a lot of the things that we've talked about, you know, projects even from widely known distributors like Netflix getting smaller budgets and still having good content and good recognizable films, Um, the rise of other multimedia platforms like gaming and podcasts uh, is incredible. And then even people sort of cross-pollinating between podcasts and TV and movies. And I think those sort of things have sort of grown into um, the backbone of it all, which is storytelling uh, versus someone just being Uh, a director of only feature films um, or just a director of television, which I think you saw uh, in the past.
0: Going back to our earlier conversation, um, since people aren't just doing one thing anymore, is that contributing to the loss of, I guess, recognizability?
1: I don't know. I think time will tell. I think we're developing more segmented audiences. Um, For example, I I was uh, a presenter yesterday at a... um, workshop on Kickstarters and we were talking about how to make successful Kickstarters and there was a a woman from Kickstarter there and she was talking about one of the most recent successful projects which was this group of gamers who uh they stream their game playing of I think D&D on Twitch or something which clearly I know nothing about and it's not I am not the audience for that and they put up something on Kickstarter Um, I'm not even sure if the project was a book or what sort of other thing. It was a different multimedia platform than what they were normally doing. And uh, they were funded at over a million dollars, I believe, in hours. Oh,
0: my goodness. And
1: because their audience wanted to see that. So I think, you know, those audiences are going to become more segmented. I think the idea of everybody going to the water cooler at the office and talking about the last night's episode of blah, 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 that might be over. But the idea that audiences aren't going to pay attention anymore, I think that will never stop.
0: Yeah. The concept of everything becoming segmented is interesting and actually how the industry is evolving. A few months ago, I had the pleasure of talking to David Oyelowo, uh, who Alyssa and I actually got the opportunity to work with on a feature film called The Waterman, where David directed and was starring in it he mentioned to me how there are these companies out there who are starting to make content in very short formats. Mm-hmm. Uh, content in that is around 10 minutes long, which is kind of the standard YouTube video, so people mm-hmm. can get monetized from that. And moving forward, I, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on the kind of very short series-based content?
1: I think that that may be the next thing that we see. I I too have spent a lot of time um, talking with sort of up and coming content entrepreneurs in LA and a lot of what they're telling me and presenting to me is these startups where um, they have an audience in mind, whether that's 20-somethings, another one I've recently seen is targeted at women in their 30s, that's just short uh, what they're sort of calling snackable content, right? Hmm. Something that, you can watch when you're walking from the bus to your office. Um, you can have your headphones in on the bus or wherever and sort of enjoy this really short form content. Um, we'll see what happens with it, but I definitely think that there's, there's room for it and room for it to grow. And I think the idea of how long something should be is sort of gone out the window. Um, you know, even even TV shows that we see now on regular streaming services, not every episode's the same length. It can be really defined by anything, um, which I think is an asset to the creative storytelling part of it. We don't have to make it fit into a formula anymore.
0: Where do you actually see the, I guess, art form of cinema going in this next decade?
1: I'm excited about it. I mean, I think that before we had televisions and people were sitting around fireplaces or campfires or whatever and telling stories that those stories were only heard by a few people. And I think the opportunities that we have now are for everyone to hear stories from every corner of the earth. And that's really exciting. I don't think there's ever going to be a situation where we run out of stories to tell. There's, you know, so many experiences and new ways to tell to tell things. and. Um, new ways to look at things. And I think that that's really what's exciting about the ability for us to sort of have uh, the, these opportunities to create um, content that reaches the globe.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alyssa. I, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your insight into this topic and actually talking about some of your films. And when is, has Seaside premiered yet?
1: Uh, Seaside is out and available. Um, We distributed a few months ago. uh, So right now it's available on any sort of um, uh, streaming services like Amazon, Vudu, iTunes. Um, It's also available on demand. So if you have on demand cable, uh, you can look through there and find it. Um, It stars Ariana DeBose.
0: That's fantastic. And when is Here While premiering?
1: Uh, Here a While premiered just last weekend at the Napa Valley Film Festival. Um, it's had a couple of other smaller festival screenings, and we anticipate a few more, but um, we're hoping it, for it to be distributed in 2020.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, am looking forward to Here a While. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Owen. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Next week, we will be discussing urban heat islands and how climate change is affecting them. This has been Situational Significance.